Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined today by Jamie Leng, the founder of Candy Kittens, former star of Strictly Come Dancing and Made in Chelsea, and now author of a new memoir, I Can Explain. Jamie's one of the most open and honest and energetic guests I think we've ever had on the show. A natural entrepreneur with infectious enthusiasm, in his early 20s, he walked into a meeting with Harvey Nichols to pitch his new business, Candy Kittens, and walked away with a £150,000 order, despite never having produced a single sweet. When he was a kid, Jamie's friends used to joke that everything he touched came with LAT, laying added tax. But more than that, he's a true entertainer and a thoughtful commentator on topics of mental health, popular culture, and the perils of social media. In a wonderful episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, Jamie tells us why he originally thought Made in Chelsea might be the biggest mistake of his life, the problem with the label posh, how he always used to worry that a swarm of wasps might turn up and ruin the party, and why we should all tell our parents we love them as much as possible. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special, unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. Hi, Jamie. Hi, buddy. How are you doing? Ah. You sounded very professional then when you spoke about QuickTime and stuff. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to put you to shame <laughs> that we're recording this podcast. And and the great thing about what we're doing right now is you're recording this as a podcast. And then you're mm. going to transcribe it as well. So you're basically yeah. you're being lazy, if I'm honest. Well, it's laziness. It's efficiency. But I like what you're doing right now, which is showing people the magic behind it. You're kind of like Louis Theroux deconstructing the medium yeah it is what i i like to break down the walls the problem with everything right like television so television for example started you know it was in the black and white stages or you know even before there was like no sound and there always needs to be constant innovation within it and i think audio is obviously doing the same thing we need constant innovation in the audio world wow i just depend just i don't really know where that's gonna end up i was talking to someone the other day apparently um sex tech is a big thing and audio porn audio porn is that kind of connected to the, do you know what ASMR is? Yeah, yeah, I, I know what yeah. ASMR is. That kind of thing, that kind of thing. It's, but people get very funny if if people are eating or or anything kind of clicky mouthy yeah. on a podcast. People will will unsubscribe and say horrible things about you. So sex text. Is this is what you you do. Is this is what you, you're generalizing everyone. This is you, your, your phobias. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty good on it. But I'd like to get into this um this porn what did you say porn audio yeah i think it's called it's, it's called sex tech i think i think okay. that's what they said to me and it's it's audio porn particularly for mm. women but i can that's literally firstly i could be talking nonsense because i could have misheard them but i definitely okay. didn't and secondly i don't know any other details apart from that but apparently this is the next big thing okay okay yeah, just so well, that could be a good sideline for me journalism's <laughs> tough maybe audio porn's the thing go into audio porn We'll do it together. That's it. Gentleman's audio porn. That sounds terrible. But Jamie, so listen, we're talking, we're talking the future now. Yeah. But you've just produced, and you'll like this segue very much. You've just produced a very analog piece of technology. You've written a book. <laughs> Holy smokes. I love that. <laughs> that, good? that was from, from a radio pro. How did that sound? Let's give it, that was fantastic. <laughs> that no one saw that coming. That was a long way off. Whoa. Wow. Um, yeah. So people have asked me to write a book before, and I was like, I'm just really not gonna write a book i have yeah. nothing to talk about i have nothing to say and then i was asked to write a book again and i again the same thing i said i said i have nothing to write about well, oh god i went to boarding school at eight did you really say that everyone says oh why would you want to read a book about me uh, yeah but everyone right? okay. no no seriously why would you want to read another book about a posh white kid i mean honestly like poor him <laughs> and so in my head i was like i don't really think i don't really know why i would write it and and you know i i from the beginning i did made in chelsea right which mm -hmm. is a reality show which some people liked and some people didn't like. And so I have, 
you know, wiped my bank account of like luck, if you see what I mean. Like in terms yeah, of that's yeah. lucking your way into an industry which people mm-hmm. work really hard to, you know, the actors and actresses and musicians and all into entertainment. And I got through the back door by doing a reality TV show. So in yeah. my eyes, when you take, when you sort of go through the back door in one place, you don't really, sounds like a weird euphemism, but it's not. Um, <laughs> but when you do, when you find a shortcut into somewhere, you don't, that's the only shortcut you're allowed, in my opinion. You yeah. then have to work for things after that in order to gain respect for these different things. And I kept thinking, well, if I write a book, the only reason I'm writing a book is because someone in some publication company has said, well, he's on TV. Let's get him to write a, write a book so it makes mm. money. And, and I think that's cheating the system, right, once again. Right. So I kept saying, no, anyway, they came back and then they offered me loads of money. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I said, yes. <laughs> no. But they, they said, okay, well, what do you want to be it about? And I said, well, Throughout my early 20s, and when I was younger, I, I was an anxious kid. Um, mm-hmm. I was incredibly outgoing and, and confident, but also shy, you know, all these kind of things that typical people are. Um, and in my early 20s, I suffered really bad anxiety, like terrible anxiety and insecurities and all these different things. And someone said to me the other day, which was really profound, they, they were talking about mental health and the issues of mental health. And they said to me, oh, we got to get over the stigma of mental health. And no, I said that to them. we got to get over the stigma of mental health. And he said, Jim, I've got to stop you there because the difference is, is yes, of course we do. But what's very different is someone saying, I have anxiety, I have depression, I have this, I have mm-hmm. that. And when you say it about yourself, that's so different to actually saying, let's go over the stigma. And I thought that's so good. So I wanted to write a book which was funny and interesting, I suppose. And I had lots of different stories where I should have died. I'm like a cat. I should have died nine times. And I haven't. Um, and make it entertaining and, and not be edited by a production company, but be edited by myself, yeah. but also put in there things that would hopefully help one male, one man, one woman, someone, particularly young men, someone pick it up and go, okay, I'm experiencing the things that he experienced mm. and he's okay. So hopefully I'll be okay. And so that's why I wanted to kind of do it. I like right at the start, there's this really good passage where you kind of try and preempt everyone's first impressions of you. Yeah. And you have this list of adjectives. Um, I think you say posh, loud, loyal, things like that, but also kind of arrogant and dim. I hope I haven't made those two up. I yeah, I think you have. Um, I never put dim and arrogant. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and you're kind of trying to, yeah, preempt what people think of you. Yeah. Are you someone who worries a lot about that? Is that something yeah. that's constantly in your mind? Well, yeah, but, I, you know, firstly, I would challenge most people to say, like, do you, do you, do you care? Do you not care what people think about you? And most people, I, I would say probably most people do. Yeah, I would yeah. say I'm on the uh, more aggressive scale of caring what people think about me, 100%, always have been. Because I always wanted to be cool and I always wanted to be accepted and I always wanted to be the funny one, you know, and I always wanted yeah. to be uh, this and that. And so I've always cared so much about what people think. You know, th- there has to be some sort of reason why you go and join a reality show, right? What, you're trying to get validation from somewhere. And for me, I think I was trying to get validation from anyone and... You know, you join Main Chelsea, and the problem is, is it's a double-edged sword because you mm. get huge amounts of validation from strangers, and 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 some people dislike you, but also a lot of your friends then judge me for doing it. So yeah. it was more like I became popular, but but more lonely at the same time, and it was a weird kind of thing for me because suddenly I had wished for all of this this fame and all these different things, and I suppose some sort of fame came towards me, but I couldn't understand why I wasn't content. It's like, this is what I've always wanted. Why wasn't I content with it all? One of the first words that that comes up in the list is posh, as we spoke about. Now, listen, I've got an accent. (laughs) Come on, Jay. We know you. Have you spotted it? Um, I I was speaking just last week with an American friend who's moved over to London, and she was talking about this phenomenon of posh, because it doesn't exist over there. It doesn't exist in any other culture. And it's so coded. There's like a hundred different meanings and anxieties and kind of class structures and history bound up in this idea of poshness and you know people throw it around and and it's probably accurate but it's it's like it's this oddly burdensome thing yeah how do you feel about being called posh how does that make you feel is it reductive well it it, it, i i think it's one of those things that um the difficult thing with posh right is that Mm. like i didn't choose i didn't have a choice in 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 how I was brought up or, or, or what, mm. what environment I was brought up, what culture I was, you know, that's just what happened. I was a kid, you know, my parents sent me to a school. I had no choice in that. Um, my parents spoke a certain way. I, I mimicked what they spoke like. And so what happens is when you're called posh and, and posh, is, posh is kind of seen as a sort of derogatory term now that you're going to be a certain individual 
you know, stereotypical person. And I suppose that, you know, there's stereotypical stereotypes in every sort of, you know, cultural industry, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I, I speak a certain way. I went to a certain school. I, I grew up going on nice holidays and in, in a privileged lifestyle. So yeah, you could probably consider me posh. But I don't think that, for me, what was really hard um, about being cool, I didn't care about being cool posh. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me. You know, I, I'm proud of my roots. I'm proud of who I am because I think I'm a pretty nice guy. So I don't really, I'm not ashamed of anything. What was hard for me is that everyone thought that I was heir to this, this, this McVitie's fortune, right? So everyone yeah. thought that I was going to inherit all these billions and trillions of McVitie's money when I wasn't. So I had the stigma of being a rich kid which, you know, I'm, I'm privileged, right? But I didn't, my parents haven't given me any yeah. money since, you know, my allowance that first stopped when I was 16 or 18 or whatever it was. And so I had the stigma of being some billionaire rich kid without having any of the money. So I was like, this sucks. <laughs> and, and then the biggest issue for me is when I started my business, Candy Kittens, everyone thought and still do thought it was a success because I had all this money and I, and I pushed it all into it and made it a success. It isn't viable, right, to, to set up a business and it not work, but just keep pumping money into it. That's that's nonsense. Why would anyone do that? But, yeah. but I, I suppose naivety of people think that you can achieve success by just throwing money at it. And for me, I, I didn't care about myself because I don't really care what people think that. It was the team, my team who had like, you know, the guys who've employed my business partner who've gone all of these years building it up to what it is. And for them to be told that the only reason it was successful is because Jamie had all this money. And they're like, well, that's not the case. We started with three grand. I, that was tough for me. But that's the only yeah. thing, apart from that being called posh, whatever. I mean, people get called a lot more things than posh, right? And I, I can deal yeah. with it. What do you think about it? Do you, do you, what do you think about it? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very similar to you, I think. The problem is that when people expect that they know, you know, they can work out 90% of your character within five seconds of hearing how your vowels sound. You know what I mean? So they think, oh, right, okay, of course you'd say that. You probably, you know, they think about how you might vote and, you know, that your that's parents... That's exactly it. And it's like, well, something, some of your assumptions are probably right, but a lot of them probably aren't. And and it's not, you know, helpful to go in with a hell of a lot of assumptions straight and, on. And Richard Osman wrote an article, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, oh, that was great. Yeah, yeah, measure. yeah. Have you, have you read it? Have you have you read it? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing where where he talks about, um, you know, he went to Cambridge and said, I'm reading it and I was fully expecting to have a chip on my shoulder the whole time. But when mm. he got there, he found not only was... Um, there are loads of state school st students there like himself. There are also some quite nice people from private schools. And you think, oh, that's annoying. You know, he didn't realize that actually yeah. um, private educated kids were actually really nice. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's the problem with being posh is that people just think you're automatically going to be a wanker. And it's like, yeah. well, you're, you're not actually, you know, you just, so if you were sent to a school that was paid for, that doesn't make you no. an idiot, right? The, absolutely. The interesting second part of, of that article, I think, is how he's, where he talks about the kind of metric he puts on it. If he meets someone with an accent yeah. and he thinks they're in a position of, of authority, he asks himself, would they have got there if they didn't go to private school? Yeah. And if, if that's the case, then he thinks, okay, you know, that's something to think about. Yeah, no, which is, which is, which is profound. Right. But, but I would sort of say that in a lot of um, different cases, right. That you, you could challenge anyone in any situation. Would they be there if it wasn't for their upbringing? Yeah. Right. So it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a hard thing to, um, judge i would say yeah it doesn't bear thinking about because i don't know where i'd be sadly <laughs> very very lucky very lucky boys let's put that out there incredibly lucky yeah. but you mentioned school there and um what were you like at school i kind of know the answer but you tell me <laughs> i can't tell you uh, i was terrible um at school I, I wasn't terrible in terms of like nasty or anything like that i was just it didn't interest me like I, mm. I didn't want to learn Latin and I didn't want to learn these things. I, I, I really liked English because it was kind of creative and you could debate and you could have different thoughts. And I liked that. I liked drama because you could be creative. Anything that wasn't creative, I just really didn't like. And I was bored of it. And I, you know, I think if you diagnose me, you know, if I was a kid in the current climate and you die, you know, I'd probably be diagnosed with some ADHD or something like yeah. that because I just couldn't sit still. I was always around the place. I failed all exams all the time. I never worked and never did anything. Um, but, you know, my my uh, my reports would say getting across it like Jamie is like drowning puppies. You know, people didn't want to do it, they, but they they just they had to do it. So they had to get across at me and all these different things. So I was very charming. And uh, I kind of got my way through school, through sport, because I was very sporty. Um, and I think through that cheeky charm that people would say, oh, it's OK, it's Jamie, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was my saving grace. 
Is that a good strategy? If there are any eight-year-olds listening, <laughs> ditch the studies, just just be charming. But you can't learn to be charming, I suppose. Well, I, I don't think you can learn to be... Ch- I, 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 I did learn to communicate um, yeah. because I was thrown into a dormitory at eight years old uh, with 15 strangers. And yeah. I was forced to communicate with them, right? So I was forced to make friends. And that was born to go eight. So you, you, you have to communicate in order to survive. And so that's what I learned. I, learned, I remember listening to an interview, I think it was with Tom Hanks, and he went to like 22 different schools. And what that taught yeah. him is how to change characters. And that's why he became very good at acting, because he could change characters. And for me, I think I'm quite good at communicating is because from eight years old, I had to communicate. So I think that's yeah. what it taught me. There was one line that really grabbed me from your school days in the book, where you said you walked into the bathrooms on your first day at school and you saw someone doing a line of cocaine. Now, I thought... Come on, this can't be true. Did that actually happen? Yeah, it did. It, it did happen. Are you sure it wasn't like a sherbet straw? No, I, I, I kid you not. And and I didn't. Wow. I, I was sheltered, but I went to a, I went to a school. I went to Radley College, and it was after Radley College, and I went to a, a another college to do my retakes. And um, I was sheltered. I was like a sheltered, you know, Radley boy. And suddenly walking in there and seeing someone doing drugs, I was like, "What the hell? Hell, hell is this?" <laughs> What is this? Teacher, teacher. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And it kind of made me, uh, made me realize how sheltered I was. You, were, you, were you fairly entre- entrepreneurial though? What, mm. what is uh, LAT? That was laying out of tax, uh, which, <laughs> which was basically, so yeah, always as it, I was fascinated by money and I don't know why, because I think money, um, for me, it was a sense of like freedom. Right. If you, yeah. you know, I remember, I, you know, I couldn't go and buy food or, or, or go away from home because who would, you know, how would I pay to, to eat my mighty white or, you know, I didn't have anything. Right. And so I, right. I saw mighty white as a back in <laughs> what, the day. What, what is mighty white? I've Do you know it was that loaf of bread? Mighty white. Do you not remember it? Mighty white? No. no, I mean, I remember thinking that, um, Hovis was pretty good. Oh no. Mighty okay. white. Mighty white was like a, I think low end bread. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's what you wanted. That's what <laughs> that's I wanted. A, that's the status symbol. Huh? Yeah. And so for me, it was always, I really didn't like not being able to do things. So I, I didn't like boarding school because I felt trapped. I wasn't allowed to leave. Um, yeah. I didn't like being younger because it meant rules. So I always wanted to be older. And for me, money was where I could then fend for myself. And so I remember at six years old or five years old, I made a deal with my mum that I would pick all the dead daffodils off the daffodils on this our sort of drive into our house. Um, and I went and did that and I said, it'll be 10p per daffodil. And I picked so many. My mum said, well, I'm not paying you. She couldn't pay me because I picked so many throughout the entire day. And then at school, at Summerfields, my prep school, I organised for all the leavers to have rugby shirts uh, with their names on the back, you know, leavers 05 or whatever, 02, whatever it was. And the joke going around the school was that I had LAT on it, which was laying added uh, tax. And yeah, I did. I, I made 700 quid from <laughs> selling these rugby shirts to my friends. Wow. Yeah. At 13? Uh, yeah, I was, thir- I was 13 years old. Yeah, 13 years wow. old. And I made seven. That's pretty good. Well, it, it, it was good, but it was, you know, I, I, I have to be very honest. I'm a good entrepreneur. I don't, mm. I, I think I'm a mediocre businessman. Um, I think I'm okay. I think I could probably do it, but I'm, I'm, I would say I'm, I would say I'm sort of above average entrepreneur if I had to be yeah. modest. Um, so throughout my life, I've been very good at finding people to help me um, achieve what I want to achieve. So with Candy Giddens, I have my business partner Ed Williams, who's incredible, and without him, the business wouldn't be where it is, and likewise the other way around. And with my rugby shirts, um, I asked one of the teachers to help me do it because I didn't know right. how to do it. So then he did it and I was the one who just So I'd always <laughs> find people to help me do things. What cut did he get? He got a cut. I think he got 400 quid. No, he did. A teacher he, at a pre-bank school a, a te- making more money off the kids. Yeah, I swear to God, a teacher. This is a scoop. Yeah, yeah, a well, teacher. I swear to God, to a, a teacher at the school. Yeah. We tricked everyone to uh, earning money from them. Wow. Yeah. It's terrible. This is a scoop. <laughs> <laughs> so you, after school, you, you went up to Leeds. Yeah. Um, and had a thoroughly lovely time, I'm sure. But were you then thinking, okay, I've got to get a career? What were you staring down the barrel of? Were you doing internships? Were mm-hmm. you working hard? Yeah, so I did an internship. My mum got me an internship at um, Zurich Insurance. And I remember I arrived there on the first day, and it was a two-month internship. And I arrived there, and, and I sat next to a guy who was looking after me for that day, and he was wearing completely beige, everything beige, beige tie, beige shirt, everything. 
And, and I was like, this is, this is terrible. And he turned back, every time he turned back to the computer to, to show me some more things, I would have to hit my face to wake myself back up again. And I thought, <laughs> this can't be right. I said, I said, this can't be right. I remember thinking this is worse than school. And I thought yeah. school towards the end was pretty bad. And I loved the sport and things like that, but it was repetitive. And that's what I couldn't handle. And I remember thinking, this, I could, this can't be right. I remember that this yeah. can't be it. And so the, the next day I came into Zurich Insurance and I quit. And I said, I made up a story, an elaborate story that I was going to go and be in a movie. And I remember the person who I said I'm quitting to said, will we get to see it in the cinema? And I went, oh, hopefully. I'm making completely lying. And what, what was the movie oh, called? I, I don't think I gave it a name. I said I was going out to Fine. Edinburgh to, to, project, to, to yeah. it was a product. I was going out to Edinburgh to record it because Edinburgh Festival at the time. And I said I was going to go Fine. to Edinburgh to record it. Um, and it was anyway, so I quit, but then every single day I had to wake up, uh, for a month or two months and put on my suit and say to my mum, I was going to work and pretend I was going to work every morning. And I'd walk around to my friend, Charlie Killers's house. Um, and that was kind of like my first realization that perhaps I didn't want to have the stereotypical job. I, I, I still to this day, but I, I find it troubling. Uh, why would you want to make someone else? A success why wouldn't you want to just do it for yourself and and mm. and look you know that's a probably a very privileged place to come from that I, i'm fortunate enough to discover what i didn't want to do where typically most people have to you know 99.9 percent .9 of the country have to go and work in a supermarket a local shop um a building site to, to earn cash to pay for mortgages family food whatever it is and i was probably in a more fortunate position where i had a roof over my head i, I food was on the table and things like that mm. um but so then left university and I went, thought, okay, fine. I came out with a 2-2 for theatre and performance. And I thought, I remember I put my status on my Facebook was 2-2 theatre and performance. Does anyone need their car washing? Because I remember thinking, well, this is, this is not a good start into the big bad world. And they call that year the lost year, right? So to all of the younger listeners is when people leave university, they call it the lost year because yeah. it's the year that people yeah. really panic. They don't know what to do. And typically now it's much, jobs are hard to come by. And I got offered this job at this wealth management fund and because I told a joke. At the end of the interview, the guy asked me to tell a joke and I said, what do you call Postman Pat once he retired? And the guy went, what? And I said, Pat. And he found it. It's a good, it's joke. A good joke. It was a, especially it's off the car. family friendly too. Yeah, yeah. So he really liked it. He said, I would like to hire you. You start next week. And I had a week to decide if I want to do this job. Meanwhile, I'd been offered Made in Chelsea. And I wanted to do Made in Chelsea, but didn't have the balls to do it. Yeah. And I remember I had a week to decide to do Made in Chelsea and a week to decide to do this wealth management fund. And I thought, what is what am I going to want to do? And I knew, I was like, well, I want to do Made in Chelsea, but can I really face up to the criticism and the embarrassment that I think I was going to get from it? Or do I go into this one that I just don't want to enjoy? And I remember thinking... I am going to go and do Made in Chelsea. I can't bear the thought of having to wake up and go to that job. And, yeah. and that's what pushed me into doing Made in Chelsea was a choice between a typical job or a job that I had no security and no future and all those different things. That's why I chose it. You, you write in the book that you remember watching the first ever episode before you were involved and thinking that all your friends had made the biggest mistake yeah. of their life. Yeah, yeah. So, so even knowing that, you still chose to do it. What was the thing that pushed you over the edge? It was the fear that I was going, that I could see my future. Um, yeah. That's what it was. I, I remember thinking, if I go into this wealth management job, I know that I'm going to, I know what I'm going to be doing. I know who my girlfriend's going to be. I know what, what pub I'm going to yeah. be going to. I just knew everything. And I, that didn't yeah. excite me. Routine for me, people think routine is really good. I think routine is very good. But routine also scares me massively. That's exactly the same for me. What, what I didn't want to do was be able to know in 10 years' time, I'll earn this much and be able to afford this house. For, the, for some people, that is a wonderful comfort. But to me, it felt like, you know, just easing very steadily closer to death. Yes, but that's exactly the same as me. I was like, yeah. so wait, I'm just then just waiting to die because, yeah. and I thought, I just thought, why would I want to yeah. do that? But but also, you, you're also saying you with me is that we were, we were naive. So we did, I didn't know all these things. I just kept thinking, this can't be right. No one was telling me these yeah. things. I just remember thinking yeah. this can't be right. And 
it was it was that sense of I know what's going to happen if I do this. And I thought, well, what if I do main Chelsea? What's going to happen? I didn't know what the future would hold. I thought, well, that's more exciting than knowing what the future is. It's the same thing. Okay, would you would you like to know how you die or when you die? Um, how? Surely, yeah, surely, right? I think a lot of people would pick when. No, 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 no. For me, it wouldn't be. Yeah, no, I promise you, it's so odd. A lot of people would pick um, when they die. Wow. And for, for me and you, it's how, of course. I don't know when, but, but a lot no. of people, that sense of unknown, they can't handle. So they need security in it. And, and I think that's where you differ. And it's interesting that you ask different individuals that question, because then you can get a sense of what they're like. And I think, mm. I think most, uh, not most, but it, it's, it's a difference. But um, for, for me and you, we don't want to know when we die, because that's how we die, fine. And, and so for my job that pushed me in for what my career, I didn't want to know what would happen to me. I, like, I, the sense of like knowing what would happen was too boring, but I want to know what I could do now and how exciting it was, but I didn't want to know the end of it. There's a really nice passage, almost exactly to that effect. Um, when you're talking about having the time of your life on the show, and I know it was problematic as well, and it was obviously a cause of some anxiety, but you were having a fun basically, mm. but you're describing knowing that it will end one day yeah. and that kind of ruining the party. And you said, you describe it as like being engulfed, engulfed by a swarm of wasps. Yeah. And this is what you say on bad days. You can see the swarm waiting out of the corner of your eye. As you lift the glass of champagne to your mouth, the wasps are coming. They're always coming. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was so, so good. What, do you still think about the wasps now? What, what, where are the wasps? Yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's okay. So Churchill always spoke about, um, he called it the black dog, right? The black dog yeah. was always there. And that was his sort of depression, right? That he dealt with. And for me, my anxiety and the worries, all those kind of things was the wasps. Mm. Always there, always lurking. Oh my God, it's going to finish. It's going to end. It's going to end. It's going to get end. And, you know, th- that was the, um, the sort of nectar to, to my uh, anxiety and my, my panic attacks and I had and all those different things. But it was also the nectar to why I kind of drove, started a business and started podcasts yeah. and all the different things because it was the fear that it was always going to end. So if it was going to end tomorrow, I need to make everything happen now, 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 because it's going to end tomorrow. So yeah. it was, again, this double-edged sword. Um, thankfully, there was still luck, right? They're 100% they're still there. And my fear of, achievement and choice making and whether I've done the right things and that looms in my head every single day. And I think that's yeah. With I read the book, um, shoe dog, Phil Knight, Phil Knight. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the founder of Nike. And it was interesting because, you know, it's Nike. I mean, that brand is incredible. Right. And, but even to the end before he floated, he was still like, Oh, I don't know why, you know, this kind of thing. And perhaps we're never going to be satisfied, but I would say that I'm much more balanced in my life. Yeah. And I think that's down to my relationship. I think I'm more balanced because I'm in a relationship that I love. And yeah, there's ups and downs in it, but that gives you a much better base than to go and do other things. I want to talk about the things afterwards, but but the show is, is an interesting to me as a phenomenon because it was, there were lots of reality shows around that time, but it really was very big and very successful. And quite quickly, you and, and a lot of the cast members went from being you know, just normal people to kind of thrust into the world of celebrity and in a way without any preparation or having ever, you know, done anything like that before you weren't actors jobbing on the circuit and then slowly building yourself up. It's, it's overnight success, which as we know is pretty troublesome. Very troublesome. Yeah. Did, Did you always want to be famous? I guess my question is, and then what was it like when you finally found yourself famous? Yeah. Was it good? Was it bad? Was it fun? Was it terrifying? Oh, I always wanted to be famous. Like, that's, that's all like, I remember I used to have dreams or I used to think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, if they had a school play and I would walk in with like a headband on and, and, a, and a Mohican and be the cool kid in the, the play and everyone would be like cheering my name. It was like, what is <laughs> bizarre? Like I wanted to, to be known. I just wanted to yeah. be known. And I thought that was the best thing. And yeah, we it's did. not a fashionable thing to say that it's not popular to say, Oh, I want to be famous. No, it's but, but it's, but it's truthful. I say it and people think that's shallow. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know I mean? It's so shallow. It's the most, oh, it's, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, obviously, no, it's the most shallow. <laughs> I love how you presented that so politely. To I me. thought you were going to say, no, actually that shows you've got true depth, Joe, your, your, your hunger for fame. No, it's the most shallow thing in the world. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and it's it was pathetic, right? Like, like you know, anyone who does a reality show, they're not going, oh, I really want to understand the social experiment of what it's going to be like. You know, because you want to be famous. Like, obviously, that's why you do right. it, right? Um, and it's incredibly shallow. And it's... Um, it's pointless as well. Like you don't gain anything from it. And the problem was, is that when I gained some sort of notoriety and it wasn't overnight, it was a, it was a slow build, which is, which is a much more uh, forgiving, I think. Anyway, okay. um, maybe from the outside, it looked yeah, rapid, instead, but I guess no, if you're filming it and you're, yeah, it was, yeah. it was, it was slower than something like love Island is or, or yeah, other yeah, things yeah. like that. Um, and then when you gain whatever, notoriety is you realize what nonsense it is and and the way i think i remember having sex for the first time right and i remember thinking this is going to be the best thing of my life and i remember having and thinking that was so average it was frightening and yeah. fame yeah. was a little <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and fame was is and was for me like that and so okay. that was really troubling because you then suddenly get it or get no trying you go well this is nonsense the first time someone came up to you on the street, the first time yeah. and said, are you Jamie from Men and Chelsea? Is there a flutter there? Is there a, is there a thrill? Yes, 100%. I mean, is it diminishing returns from then on? Is it like, yeah, is it downhill? Or, or is it still pleasurable sometimes? No, I think, I think, so I remember I was outside, um, I was on Dawes Road and it was, and it was outside the Waitrose and someone came up to me. Okay, fine. It's like with your art, so you write an article. Right. Mm -hmm. And people rave about it and they and they they think it's amazing. And you get validation from that because people are admiring yeah. your work. Right. And for me, that was at the time, that was my work. I was on a reality show. So people coming up and saying, oh, we love you. That was me going, oh, they they like me. They must like what I do on the show. So it's kind of like my work. The problem is with it is that it's fun. It's exciting. All these different things. But it then becomes sort of normal. Yeah. And very much like a drug, once you have, you know, your first bit of hair and you need more and more and more. So you almost want the fame yeah. to grow and grow and grow. And it doesn't. It doesn't grow and grow and grow. It stays the same. And then what happens is it starts depleting. And so you need to just, you're chasing it. Yeah. Then you start freaking out. Well, hang on a second. I'm not as popular as I once was or this and that. So it's a very dangerous thing to get obsessed with because at some point it's not going to be as fun or as interesting or you're always going to want more. You know, it's like money. Being obsessed with money is the same thing. You're always going to want more. Yeah. And, and there's always someone more famous than you or better than you or all these different things. And also fame is very much down to, you know, physicality, right? You're, you're famous because of the way you look and the way you dress, or it's down to, you know, the, the, the stuff that you produce or create. And there's always younger, funner, more interesting, better people coming below you. And there's always, God. and so, you know, you're always going to be dipping. So it's something you just have to accept when you have your moment, that's amazing. And then just appreciate anything else afterwards. Did you have any particularly low or difficult moments? I remember reading an interview that stuck with me that Ed Sheeran did. And he was on a, just as his fame was cresting, he he was on an EasyJet flight on a Sunday evening back from Ibiza or something. And everyone on there was stag dudes, hen dudes, and they recognized him within five minutes. And he was trapped <sighs> on this tube for four hours with people who, you know, were drunk as anything and just wanting to literally physically rip bits off him. And he said he had like a four hour panic attack in this yeah. tube and locked himself in the loo and just lost it. And that has been like the turning point for him and fame. I mean, I'm not saying you're Ed Sheeran. No, I'm not Ed Sheeran at all. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Did you ever have a moment when it was like, hold on, this is a, a little bit weird and uncomfortable. And you know, no. you don't know me, you're acting very odd towards me and it's almost possessive, I guess. No, I never had that moment because I don't think, um, you know, firstly, I'm no, you know, uh, Made in Chelsea fame was, it was minimal compared to, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it was a moment and stuff like that, but it wasn't Ed Sheeran or, you know, this kind of no, fame. No. And I think also the reason why, you know, someone like Ed Sheeran has such adoring fans and people is that, you know, everyone's listened to an Ed Sheeran song when they're kissing a girl or they're, they're walking in the street. And so mm. there's that song that they, he created meant so much to that person. So that's why it's such a manic frenzy of, of fandom, right? Um, yeah. I never had those moments at all, but yeah, but I suffered with um, being liked because people would then started to be mean on social media and, you know, you read Daily Mail articles yeah. that were cruel and, and that would really affect me because I suddenly realized that people didn't like me. And I went, wait, hang on, people don't like me? Of course they don't like me. I'm on a freaking reality show about being posh. <laughs> like, of course they're not going to like you. And, and yeah. that for me was hard. Does that make sense or no? No, that makes that makes a hundred percent sense. 
I'm what I'm trying to do now, Jamie, is think how I can segue this. Okay, okay let's go. Wait, here we go. Your first one was so that, great. That, that listen, listen, this is good. That was a, a bitter off. That was a bitter experience in some ways. Now then, you moved into sweets. A much no, that's, that was good. I like that. No, I like, that was so. What do you say? What do you say? But then things got a bit sweeter. Oh yeah. There yeah. you go. But then things got a bit sweeter, of course, almost literally, Jamie, yeah. when you moved into Candy Kittens. There you go. That's kind of like, that's, this is your life territory. So anyway, tell me about, tell me about Candy Kittens and why, why was it sweets? Um, so uh, when I was a kid, um, I, 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 I was scared of the dark, right? I, I watched Lamb Before Time. I don't know if you ever watched yeah. Lamb with Petrie and Sharp Tooth and things like that. <laughs> and I remember going to bed that night and saying to my mum, are dinosaurs in heaven? And my mom going, yes, of course they are. And I thinking, well, why the fuck would I want to go to heaven? <laughs> There's dinosaurs there. So I was, then became very scared of death, which is a weird for like a five-year-old kid to be thinking that deeply. Oh, God, yeah. No, I was about eight when I realized my own mortality. And the moment I realized it, this is, I know I'm jumping everyone. No, I like this. To a, um, a, a song by the Beautiful South. Oh, which one was it? Called, um, she's a perfect 10, but she wears a 12, yeah, which is it. not about death at all. But I remember I was sitting in my parents' car. That was on the radio. And I was just kind of looking out the window and I was like, it suddenly hit me that yeah. I wouldn't be here one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for about a year, I had what must be like eight-year-old depression. I was like moping, walking around. And my mum was like, the only way she can console me, she didn't want to put any religious spiritual spin on it. She didn't want to force that on me. But she just said, it's a long way away. And to me, that was not quite good enough. No. I thought it soon won't be. Um, so now my whole life is just. Um, that's interesting. To listen to that song. Anyway, no, so wait, but that's really. But wait, wait, hang on a second. Because that's really interesting that you had that. So mm. you, you were. It's because you were scared of your own mortality, where I was, I was scared of death, right? I wasn't, I, I wasn't scared that one day I was going to die. That would, mine was more scared of death with your one. That it was interesting. You had it at eight. I had it when I was late twenties, early thirties. So suddenly you realize that actually you die one day and then what's the point of everything? Yeah. And that for me was like, whoa, hang on a second. Whoa, why have I not really thought about this and digested? And that was quite a deep conversation within myself. And then you get quite philosophical about things. Um, and it's a, a bad place to get into, I think. But when I was young, I was scared of the dark. And because of this dinosaur thing. And so I used to share, I then shared a room with my brother because of it. Because I was so scared of dying. I was scared of death. It's weird for a five-year-old to like have those anxieties, but I did. Mm. And my brother, to make me fall asleep, would tell me stories of Jamie and Sweet World. That's what he used to tell me. And oh, wow. he'd make That's up these, lovely. yeah, I swear to God, he'd make up these stories. Um, and it would go on and on. And there would be different characters that came in and out. And so growing up, I had this fascination with sweets and I was never allowed them because I was too hyper. So my parents didn't give me any sweets. Um, so my one wish would was to have a world made of sweets, but sweets that didn't damage your teeth. That was my, my dream. And then I went to university and at university, I remember sitting there and I had just gone to New York with my girlfriend and I came across Dylan's candy bar, which is Ralph Lauren's daughter, Dylan Loren, her sweet shop. And it was like the Hamleys is still there. There's five of them over America. Yeah. And it was like the Hamleys or Harrods of the sweet world. And I remember coming back and going, that's what I want to do. I want to have a sweet shop. And I remember sitting with my friend, Hannah Carr-Ellison, who I actually saw last night. And I was sitting with her and she said, Jamie, you, what are you going to do? If, if you're not going to do, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to set up a sweet shop. She said, what are you going to call it? I said, I'm going to call it Candy Kittens. Yeah. And she said, why are you going to call it Candy? I said, well, candy is the universal term and kittens are they going to be the sexy, fun people to represent it. And she said, okay, sure, fine. And that's when I started at university. And then leaving university, I wanted to do, I started doing main Chelsea and I knew if I was going to do main Chelsea after saying, right, this is the path I'm going to go down. So, well, I can't just become any reality star because that's just the same as everybody else. I have to be something different. So I'm going to be the sweetie entrepreneur. And if someone told me once that you should never, if you're, if you're driving a car or flying a plane, follow logic because it gets you back in the same place as everybody else, a safe place, a place where you want to be. But if you're setting up a brand or starting a business or doing something like never follow logic because you don't want to get back in the same place as everybody else. So when I started main chance, I didn't follow logic. I said, well, what can I do differently to everybody else? And I said, well, I'll come in with a sweet idea because that's what I do. And from there it grew. Yeah, it was by luck though, but it, it sounds calculated. It was, but it was also naivety is our biggest weapon. I said to everyone, and it was naivety. Yeah. It was naivety that kind of led me towards it. That was my next question because yeah, you say that the naivety and the kind of wide-eyed innocence with which you walked into this world, which is dominated probably by a few big 
massive conglomerates, Four. really. That, yeah. Four, exactly. And you coming in there, if you'd have known that, you probably wouldn't even go out of bed that day. But what struck me was that you were incredibly successful as a brand before you'd even made or sold or had any sweets to sell. There's, tell me the story about um, the kind of pop-up you did earlier <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, it was so funny. We, we, we basically, if you try and Google how to make sweets, you, nothing comes up. Like, you, <laughs> how the hell do you make sweets, right? So we had to start like going to sweet conventions and, and then we'd yeah. go up and talk to Haribo or, or, or Maynard. And it's like going to Coca-Cola. It's like going to Volvo and saying, <laughs> I want to make a car. And they go, all right. <laughs> and they go, I've got three grand. Cool. Can we do it? And they go, fuck off. Literally, that is literally what it's like. I promise you, I can't explain it. You imagine you're—it's—it's it's literally like that. It's—it's it's like someone coming up to you and saying, "I want you to write an article about me," and you go, well, "Who are you?" And they go, "I don't know, I, uh, someone." And you go, "Well, why would I do that?" It's literally that. And anyway, we found this one company called Vidal, which they make. So they're a Spanish company, and they were a family-run company, and they knew Made in Chelsea, and they said, "Oh, we like him. We'll make the sweets for him." That was wow. literally it. It was this a piece of luck, a complete piece of luck, complete piece of luck. And that's how it kind of continued is that a, a lot of people, um, the reason, firstly, Woody Allen said 50% of success is turning up, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's so true. Just turning up and doing that, that's 50% of the success, firstly. But secondly, that wide-eyed innocence is what gets you through so many things. And fear generally stops people doing things because you get the fear or the um, knowledge that it, how hard it is or difficult it is. Um, and, you know, the first realization that we had something was we organized a pop-up shop. Uh, we had no sweets. We just had T-shirts and hoodies and pens and things like that. And I remember my business partner calling me the morning of and says, you got to get down here. And so I got down here and there was a queue going down the King's Road. I kid you not. I, I met a thousand people. I, I, honestly, a thousand people. And the funny thing was the night before we had um, closed up the shop, very excited for the next opening the next day. And two girls had come up and said, Jamie, oh my God, hi, we'd love a photo. We said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're going to wait for the Candykin shop. And they were going to camp outside the shop. No way. Yeah, yeah I kid you not. I kid you not. Like it was the Apple Did they store. camp? Did you say that's insane? I said to home. them, that's insane, guys. I said, well, and they were, they were adamant. They wanted to camp. I still don't know if they camped or not. I don't know, but I left them. Um, well, it's like an Apple iPhone. Yeah, drop. it was bizarre. And what we had created by accident is we had created a ghost. We had created this brand, Candy Kittens, but nothing within it. <laughs> and so I had talked about it on, and that was the power of television. And now what's so interesting is you see so many, um, I suppose, celebrities, right, endorsing their own products. Yeah. Whereas before Chanel would pay them, Ralph Lauren would pay them, yeah. whatever it was. And now what they're going is, well, hang on, we can own hundred percent of this. And so why would I do it? And that's, and we, we got approached by Twitter at the very beginning because we were the first business to launch via social media ever which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. We were the first business to launch on Twitter, supposedly. This is what Twitter, they wanted to do an article about us. This was back 12 years ago. Twitter just started and we launched Candykins on Twitter and we had 40,000 or 100,000 followers. That's amazing. And we were doing it all via social media, but we didn't have anything to sell. And so when we opened the shop, I remember we opened the shop and people (laughs) ran in and just grabbed the first thing. I remember a girl, the first girl, she ran in and she just grabbed something in front of her. And it was a jumper. She didn't know what she was grabbing. She didn't know what size no, it was. Just no one knew what it was. Possessed. No one knew what it was. Was it because they wanted like a piece of you or a piece of the Made in Chelsea lifestyle? They'd seen it on the show and they just think mad fandom. I think it was the piece of Made in Chelsea. Mm. I think it was. Piece of that life. I, th- I think not so much the life. I don't know. It was. It, Made in Chelsea was so, it was such an on-screen thing. Yeah, that then they that then it became something that tangible that they could touch, and I think yeah. that's what was exciting for them. I don't know. I think that's what it was. At one point, you you still didn't have any sweets. Yeah, but we you didn't. went into Harvey Nichols, yeah. and you you pitched to, for a big order. We had Charlie Bigham on here. You know Charlie Bigham. Yeah, 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 great. And he did a similar thing. He didn't really have anything to sell them, but he kind of strutted in there, which must be a thing. What was that pitch like? And what do you like pitching in general? Yeah, I I think um. It's so funny, yeah. So we went into Harvey Nichols and um, we we managed to sell them 150 grand's worth of sweets without having any sweets. And we wow. said, well, this is what we could do for you. And they said, okay, we'll put the order in. And then we had to go and find out how to make the sweets. I mean, 
to me, that sounds like a dereliction of their duty. They should have tasted something. It could have been terrible, the sweets. I, I do. Yeah, they could be. But, you know, how terrible can sweets be? I, I met a guy once, actually someone, someone who works for us, her, her boyfriend. Um, he basically, uh, he, cre- he did loads of stuff with planes, right? He, does, he did all of the engines and things with planes. Mm. And then what he did is he realized actually to make more money, he wanted to create everything on a plane, right? So he he basically just, oh, that's it. He did the laundry on flights. And then what he realized is actually he wanted to create everything on a flight. So cutlery to blankets to paper cups, all that, that's all done by a company. And he went into the pitch to pitch to be the company to do it. And he landed Emirates and all these different places. And he got landed with something like an eight point something million dollar, million quid deal. And he yeah. then had to go and find out how to make it. Wow. He just did. Yeah, it, it's all just. Did it work out for him? Yeah, it's well, he's, the business is flying. It, That's a nice way to start a business. Yeah. Get the order first and then work it out. Totally. And, and it's, it's that's a fake it till you make it. Right. And that's a, a lot mm. of things is that. And, and it's, it's, it's a lot of luck in those areas. But but with us. Yeah, we we went in there to the pitch and did that. And were you performative? We, what I mean, were you just incredibly passionate about it? I think we are and were incredibly passionate. Um, and I think that you know, we, if you meet investors, right? If you meet angel investors, to, you know, they they always say, yeah, you know, ninety percent of the investment is on the individual. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then the idea is that ten percent. And I think with us, it was the fact that we were just so excited. We were 22 and 23 or whatever we were. And we were just so excited about the sweet brand that they thought, okay, we want to go on this journey with them. And I think okay. that's what it was. They were just excited to help us out. It's it's wholesome. It's nostalgic as well. I mean, you don't hear about people starting sweet brands, but yeah. Angel Investors must get pitched, you know, new tech or fintech startups yeah. every day. It's quite sweet in a way. Well, that's not a joke, but it's, it is quite It's charming. really sweet and it's exciting. Yeah. And, you know, FMCG, fast, uh, moving consumer, fast Moving Consumer Goods, is a really hard industry to make money in. Margins yeah. are really tight. It's all about how much you're selling. It's, it's just, it's tough, tough, tough. People like it because tech is boring. Like, it's just dull. Like, but what is interesting, something you can touch and hold in a product that you go, this is the product that we've invested in. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, Rega Rega Source is a prime example how amazing it was. People loved it because it had a story about this amazing guy. And that's why people love it. They buy into the story. Yeah. You mentioned it there about it being tough. And so far, we've kind of had this charm journey where you've tripped into a pop-up and then into Harvey mm. Nichols. But it must have been tough along the way. Very difficult. What were the setbacks and were there any moments when you thought this is it we're done for now we're finished oh yeah yeah hundreds of times i mean i i, I honestly I, I over 10 times where there's been moments we go we can't go on we don't have any money um you know we didn't make profit for six seven years yeah we had to constantly raise money um i remember walking back with my my um business partner just having a meeting with my stepdad who's chairman of the company and my chairman saying you probably have to fold the business Really? Uh, yeah, he said it to us. We were 26. Just financially or? Didn't have yeah. any money. It, unfortunately, especially in, you know, the, the world of FMCG, when you're selling a product, you need cash. Because if you don't have cash, you can't buy the product. Mm. You know, and that's what, you know, a service-based business, you know, you just have to pay employees, right? That's what you kind of have to do. And yeah. then, and, and fortunately or unfortunately, you know, you, you can get rid, you can, you know, lay off employees. But when you're having a product, you need to buy the product. If you have no money, you can't do that. And our margins didn't work. Our, our margins were 0.04%. It was 4% on net margins. So we had one bad month. We were at the end of us. So we really struggled. And I wa- was walking back with my business partner. And I remember saying to him, please don't leave me. Like, like it was a relationship. And he said, if I have to sell sweets for my bedroom, I will. Don't worry. Wow. Yeah, it was an amazing moment. I remember, so we were walking back and we and we're walking back from Knightsbridge. And the funny thing is, is that people assumed that I was doing Made in Chelsea and I was earning loads of money. And I was, I just wasn't, you know, I was earning 50 quid a day filming and trying to run a sweet business and having to yeah. get the, the bus home because we couldn't afford, because we, all our money was going into this business. Yeah. It was really tough. And that's why I applaud and congratulate and admire any single person who has started who is in a business, who's created one, who's thinking of doing one, I applaud all of you because I think it's a marvellous thing to do. It's tough. And anyone who wants to do it, I I think you're incredible because it's hard. Were you seriously considering folding at any point or did you always Mm -hmm. kind of think? Yeah, yeah, no, my business partner was much more optimistic than me. There were times where I was like, God, this is not going to work. And he was always like, no, we'll be fine. 
um you know we had we had one time where we had to find 60 grand in 24 hours to pay for right. our waitrose order and if we didn't do it, we would have been delisted from waitrose and if we were delisted right. from waitrose that would be the end game and we had to find 60 wow. grand yeah that was tough how do you find 50 grand yeah we had sat in a smoothie restaurant um having a smoothie because above in the above place in, next to fulham broadway it's not there anymore and thinking how we were going to find this money and we had to go to family members everyone everyone we had to ask is on the phone calling around yeah. hi you haven't heard from me for 10 years I'm yeah Jamie. literally that and then all ego all morals go out the window and you just go look I, we're in a bad spot here we need help and you you cobbled it together yeah we managed to do it we managed to do it how long before the deadline I th- I, you know i think we, it was pretty touch and go i think we managed to get a loan from someone and then we managed to raise the 60 grand and 60 grand is really not that much you know in terms of like but you know you know when you have a business and things like that investment yeah. but it but it, 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 it when we were selling so it was it was yeah it was a nightmare it was a nightmare the whole thing and this was you know six years ago whatever it was seven years ago so yeah it, it, it's 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 tough it is a tough industry to be in What's your advice to young entrepreneurs now when they when they approach you or young FMCG particularly entrepreneurs? I would always say follow your gut um, and be naive. And I would say that unfortunately, I would say money is oxygen. You know, you you need it. Um, and I would say that um, find a category that needs innovation. Yeah. Find a and look at a category. Don't think to yourself, okay, um, everyone has a toothbrush, so I'm going to make a toothbrush. Don't look at that. Look at the categories that haven't had innovation. And if you spot a gap in the market for a place that has innovation, go for it. And I would suggest cereal. I would say go for cereals. I think that's a really good spot to go for. I was thinking about that the other day. I haven't eaten cereal, I think, since I left school. It's not something I would buy now as an adult. Yeah, but because the cereal that was back there is still the same. It hasn't been innovative. Yeah, it's sugary. It's sugary. It's this and that. So if anyone's out there, I would say go for go for the cereal market. I think it's a big industry. Okay. You heard it here first. Well, that's good. Um, I don't think I'm going to go into cereal. I I know. It's a good, it's a good one to go for, I think. I think it's a good one. I want to ask you about social media for a bit. Yeah. You want to talk about it. Yeah, of course. Because it kind of hovers in the background of this book kind of ominously. And you speak about times before social media. And I remember these times, even, you know, 10 years ago before Instagram was a thing. And it seems like they're pure and more nostalgic times when you actually enjoyed yourself more. And the way you speak about your holidays and experiences back then, it seems like you're kind of craving that simplicity. What's your relationship now with social media and particularly Instagram, which to me is the one that is... It's the silent killer, isn't it? Yeah. Um, So I think, yeah, you know... Look, I, I, I think it's really hard. I think as individuals, we have to embrace change. And change is really great in some areas, right? You know, lots of areas of change that's happening right now is super positive, amazing. But we have to accept change in areas like the digital age. We have to accept that, you know, social media is a thing and cryptocurrency is probably going to be a thing and all the, the and we have to accept that. Um, my problem with social media yeah, is that there's an amazing lecture, which is called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers which is about why in the animal kingdom, the zebra will run away from the watering hole while being attacked. And it will still go back to the same watering hole once it's escaped and drink from the same place and not even think about what could have happened. And as humans, we don't live in the present now. We really don't. We live all back and forward and left and right. And and the reason why zebras don't have ulcers is because they're living in the present. They're quite happy. And the problem also with social media is you constantly document things you're not really enjoying that moment. But also, we're meant to have a village mentality. We're meant to know like 150, 200 people. And out of that 150, 200 people, we have a unique selling point, a USP, something that makes us ourselves. So I know you're the best at journalism or you're the funniest person or you're the the best at being music, going to the gym, whatever it is, something that makes you you, that you're proud of being. The problem with social media is that we then go on social media and we start, you know, looking and liking and following those areas that we pride ourselves in. And you start thinking that you're inadequate because there are so many people achieving more than you and doing better than you, and you can never do better. So actually then you lose your sense of self. And that is the problem with social media that we compare ourselves so much to individuals. And instead of liking other people's Instagram, like yourself for a bit. That's why I always say, like yourself, stay on your lane and, and put those, you know, cut out the you know other things that's going on, and we care so much about what other people are doing that we forget to love ourselves, and that's the problem with it. I think. Do you you still on Instagram now? Yeah, but, but your your content is 
Yeah, I mean, in your defence, your content is very funny and it is not you showing off about what holiday you're on or what pool no, you're in. No, what? Basically you being fairly yeah. unpleasant to Sophie. That's exactly... Well, <laughs> for, for me, I... Um, I, I've always loved being in front of the camera, ever, you know, hence that, that sort of desire to be famous, right? I loved being yeah. in front of the camera. Ever, you know, look, I have home videos from when I was a kid and when I was 16 to 21, I video recorded everything. I have all these tapes of video, my whole life I recorded. And I just loved it because I loved entertaining. I loved capturing those moments of entertainment and stuff like that just for myself. And so now my social media is honestly stuff that I find funny. And yeah. I don't make any money from social media. You know, I do maybe the odd brand deal that comes in, but I don't do brand deals because I have candy kittens and push the podcast and stuff like that. So I, I, I don't use it as an, inf- I'm not an influencer, but I like it because I just like entertaining. And also I like doing this, right? I like talking to you and, yeah. and, and talking about things that mean something to me. And I, you know, and if that helps people, great. And hopefully people will listen and go, oh, you know, that's quite fun to listen to. And you you know, you made someone else's day quite nice. I quite like that. No. And that's what I do with my, it's my relationship with social media. Yeah, it can be positive. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I still struggle with it though. I struggle with it, right? Massively. In the way that you're still seeking approval or still reading what people say about you? I don't read what people say, but I don't mind that so much. Um, I, I, what do I, what do I seek? I seek maybe still validation. Maybe it's that still something you know oh i post a video and people like it and that gives me a thrill and maybe that's not a healthy i mean that's chemical isn't it that's just dopamine or one of them i don't know but yeah you feel yourself i mean you can almost feel it physically if you pay enough attention when a red dot comes up and you go oh god or someone says something nice yeah (laughs) you go oh Oh, god that's but that's not to be trusted but but that's That's not to be trusted and probably not a a a, you know you can probably raise your dopamines in a a healthier way right rather than And unhealthier. And, and, and way unhealthier than that. So, yeah. It, we'd be remiss not to talk about it strictly because yeah. that was kind of your big breakthrough thing. But we could talk about that in a sec. But what really interested me about the book is when I saw you breaking through and, you know, and seeing you just kind of living your best life, it appeared from the outside like everything was perfect and you'd worked it out. Jamie Lang had had had, sort, had sorted it out. And then in the book, or just before that period, you write about how you were probably the most miserable you've ever yeah. been. And you write about burnout. You didn't know it was burnout at the time, but you write about experiencing that, which really interested me because I think people are very good at talking about stress. They probably have been for a while. They're getting better at talking about anxiety. But this idea of burnout, of things just kind of weighing you down and you're not really knowing why and it yeah. you know maybe connected to work or emotional things we don't really talk about that so can you can you tell us what it felt like and then also kind of mm. what your tools for dealing with it were and whether whether you're still feeling burnout or anything like that god it, yeah, it was a really tough time so um i was getting to a point where uh, i'd done main chelsea for 10 years i had just been injured on strictly i think it was um and strictly was sort of this rope ladder that came down for me to yeah. sort of, you know, get out of this sort of reality world. And, 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 and you have to remember with reality TV, it, it, it's heavy on the soul. It's about arguing and fighting and all these different things. I'm really not like, I, I'm not very aggressive person. Like I'm quite passive. And I started, I tell you how it started for me is I started feeling incredibly socially anxious. So yeah. I would, um, having a one-on-one lunch with a friend was way too much. Couldn't do it. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. It seems so odd because that seems antithetical to your personality. So so against what I was. Yes. And that's what the problem was, is that I'm a really outgoing guy. I I love it. You know, I'm definitely an extrovert. You know, I get pleasure from being around other people massively. Mm. And I became deeply insecure. And having a one-on-one lunch was too intimate. Couldn't do it. So I could never do that. And strangers were becoming more of my friends. I could relate more to strangers. And so I was like, what is wrong with me? I didn't understand what was going on. And I ignored it. I just said, okay, it's obviously I've been drinking too much or it's like, you know, whatever it was. And that built up, that built up, that built up. And I'd always had anxiety, right? Always had anxiety. And anxiety is like heightened. Like anyone's experiencing anxiety, it's like a heightened experience. (laughs) You know, all this breath and oh God, I feel, oh God, I'm worried. It's all that. And I remember walking down the street and I had a wave of sadness. And I'd never experienced that before. And I was like, oh, this is, I don't like this feeling. And for me, it wasn't, it wasn't depressed. I've never experienced, I don't think, depression. I've been felt low, right? But I, I think my friend 
described depression to me once where they said it was just nothingness. And I don't think I've had that, but it was this sense of, I just didn't enjoy, I wasn't enjoying anything. And I remember thinking about doing a podcast and I was like, I just can't be bothered to do that. So I don't want to do that. And I remember thinking about, um, someone said, do you want to go and play golf? And I thought, yeah, if you, if you want to. I, I, all my sort of positive attitude had gone. And I remember I could always bring positivity in my life. I'm quite a pretty positive guy. And I was saying, oh, maybe I'll bring positivity here. And I, and I couldn't draw it out of me. And I finally took myself off to a therapist. And I said to the therapist, someone called Mal, who's amazing, he's in my book. So something's not quite right with me. I, I, I don't. I don't have passion for anything. I, I, I just can't be bothered with stuff. And she said, and I said, am I depressed? She said, no. She said, are you lying in bed in the morning and not being able to get up? I said, no. She said, do you feel low? I said, yeah, I feel, I don't feel, I don't feel great. I just don't feel positive. And she sort of said lots of different things. And then finally I, we worked out. She said, I think you've got burnout. And I said, what's that? And she said, typically when you get burnout, it's where you've had complete stress on your work or on something for a long time and it's built up and it finally comes crashing down and your body just goes, you can't be bothered to take it anymore. And I said to her, well, how do I get over it? She said, time, it's time. Unfortunately, you just have to give it time. And I then made the decision to quit Maiden Chelsea. Um, I focused much more on myself. I didn't look for external things. I um, stopped trying to get pleasure instantly gratification all the time so all the time looking for pleasure. okay let's go do this let's go do this all the time and slowly by slowly I, I sort of clawed myself out of this sort of place that I was and my poor girlfriend I was you know my girlfriend I just started going out with her and she bought into a contract with a guy who painted the walls like pink and yellow and green and suddenly all the balls the walls were like beige and dark and she was like I haven't bought into this relationship but she stuck by me and and forever I'll be grateful for that and it was a really tough period and I think for anyone who is experiencing burnout or experiencing symptoms towards where you feel incredibly stressed and you're really not liking to yourself, you have to take time for yourself. You really have to step back. Mm. You have to relax. You have to go on walks, breathe, get off your phone, focus on you and stop because it just gets worse. And I ignored it for so long until the point when it was too bad. And that's the problem with mental health is that you, you focus so much. Um, mental health, uh, it becomes really bad when you haven't paid it attention. And that's the problem with it, that normally you focus on it when it's a little bit too late. And that's what you should prevent it rather than act when it's too bad. Um, so, yeah, that was my, my deal with dealing with it. And what about now? You, how do you feel now? Yeah. A big I, question or a little one? I don't know. Oh, it, it, it was a long road. Yeah. And it took me a long time to, 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 to get out of it. But, yeah, I, I have to say, and this was, you know, a couple, this was three years ago, whatever it was. Um, it took a long time. Um, but yeah, I, I have to say that I'm, I'm probably the most balanced I've ever been. And maybe that's down to not doing a reality show or being in a great relationship or whatever it was, but yeah, I, I feel lucky and blessed and, and happy at the moment, which is a good thing. That does sound like a good thing. <laughs> happy. It's, that's, we got that's deep right there, didn't we? I we did. It. Well, you know, that's, yeah, I think it's good, isn't it? It's, it's Friday afternoon. It's, but two guys talking about these things, right? I think that's so important. Yeah. 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 My dad actually said that to me. I'd never speak to my dad about this stuff the other day, but I was back at home and I knew he was hanging around. He was hanging around in my bedroom for some reason, just as I was about to go to bed. I was just sitting on my bed reading and he was like, just kind of pottering around the room, looking at things on the shelf. And then he goes, um, but how are you by the way? And I was like, what? Yeah, I mean, I've been hanging out with him all day. He hadn't said anything. And he goes, how are you by the way? And I was like, okay, what an odd question. I said, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. I'm really nice of you to ask. But then we got into a big discussion about, you know, how how what we really were. I love it was that. quite quite incredible. It felt very very odd. It felt very odd, and then afterwards, I knew it had been a good thing. Yeah, it does feel odd at the beginning, especially with with typically with fathers, right? I I have the same with my dad. But did you discover anything? Did you suddenly go like, okay, that? Well, I asked him for the first time ever. Have you ever had what we would call now, but you wouldn't have called back then, mental health problems? And he said no. He's been very lucky, but when his, he had a business that went under in the 90s and, you know, 150 employees, very stressful. Yeah. And he remembers having one panic attack in a restaurant and not knowing what the hell it was. And then he felt, wow. you know, stressed for a long time. But he said that actually having been at a horrible boarding school in the 60s had taught him that, you know, no matter what happens or how horrible people are to you, they'll never, you know, they're not going to kill you. They're not going to take away your family. You're, you're still going to be okay. Even if 
the world hates you and you know yeah. they take away all your money, you'll still probably be okay. So he said that love that having a terrible boarding school yeah. experience. Mate, childhood is creates everything. Childhood puts everything within you. That's amazing. I love that. That's great. It's really good. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, that was literally last week. I mean, I, he doesn't always listen to this podcast. If he does, you know, nice chat, dad. Thanks for that. This isn't yeah, going to be so about wicked. me. Jamie, this is not going to be about me. No, but listen, um, I just want to say one more thing. It's so, it's so great. My, my dad, right. My dad had had like lots of different things throughout our lives. And um, anyway, a few summers ago or a couple of summers ago, he uh, was coming back from a bike ride and I wasn't there. My little brother phoned me up and he said, dad doesn't remember anything. And I said, what do you mean? Dad doesn't remember anything. So dad doesn't remember anything. And, you know, who knows what he couldn't remember the bike ride or whatever it was. Couldn't remember anything, but you know, slowly things came back and he was okay, but it was a bit of a shock. Yeah. Right. Cause you suddenly go, Oh God, wow. you know, we don't, we, we, you know, who knows, who knows what it was, but something, it was odd. Um, and it made me realize that your family are not always going to be there. And so mm-hmm. then that summer I sent him a message so I just want you to know, um, you, you've been a great father, an amazing wow. father. And I said all this thing to him and he, oh, re- yeah. And he replied to me saying, so lovely. he's saying you, he replied to me saying, you can't even imagine what that means to me. And I couldn't be oh. more proud of you. And that was all oh. we had to say to each other. And, and now enough. we're better than ever, better than ever. And it's just because of those, those two messages, that one message I had to send him. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so I encourage people to do that to family, friends. Nelson Mandela said, um, you know, uh, seeking revenge is like drinking poison and wanting the other person to die. And I think that translates to so many things is that like if you have a grudge or you arguing or whatever, a riff or whatever it is, try and make it up because, it, you know, life is short. Before you go, so let's talk about something. I'm trying to spin this now okay, into go. a big, profound ending, but also a positive look to the future. Yeah. How do I do that? Do you want to take, do you want to take this link? Yeah, I'll take this link. <laughs> You know, but the great thing is, is, is with all of that stuff that's happened in the past and all the things that happened, yeah. that, you know, for me, which I'm really excited about that's coming up, you know, there's lots of stuff happening in the future. I think that's what's so great. And, and you've got to look towards the future always and be excited about it. And, and I just hosted a show called I Like the Way You Move, uh, which is mm-hmm. a dating dancing show. Um, think Love Island meets Strictly Come Dancing. Five sexy dancers move into a house and they meet 15 rookies and they partner up and fall in love through dance. It's incredible. It's coming on BBC three in October, uh, eight episodes. It's going to be insane. And I'm the host of it, Great. which is my dream forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is, yeah, just, And also because I did Strictly, I have all the credentials now to judge a dancing Absolutely. show. Um, but it's amazing. And it's fun. It was so incredible shoot. And honestly, I cannot wait for people to see it's, it's going to be, it's a new age, you know? Yeah. We've got another day to, it's not, it's wholesome and lovely yeah. and wonderful and warm. And it's just epic. I like the way you move. That's brilliant. I look forward to that. Do you still hear the wasps, Jamie? Are they still buzzing around? Right now, they're okay. They're a bit silent. Okay. But maybe that's because I had a wonderful chat with you. Amazing. <laughs> uh, I feel like I ended on a downer there, but Jamie, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, I really loved it. I really so, loved it as well. Yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.